And as we have said repeatedly, Matthew 18, the word discipline never shows up here. Really, the context of this passage is, if a brother has sinned, these are the steps that you must go through in order to restore the brother. So there's really not a lot of legitimacy to calling it church discipline. It really is more appropriately entitled uh, restoration of a brother. And, and what I want to point out again is, as we've talked about 15 to 35 being really related to the topic of forgiveness, 15 to 20 is really talking about conditional forgiveness based on whether or not there's repentance. When we get to verses 21 to 35, that's talking about extending unlimited forgiveness if there is repentance. And so we need to understand it in light of that. Now, as I was talking last week, I I used a quote by Jay Adams that I'd just like to revisit for just a moment because I was talking about the need to communicate it to the body. What does it mean, tell it to the church? And so I used a quote by Jay Adams that said, a way to tell it to the church is by telling it to the elders of the church because the elders sort of represent the people as the new Israel. I was not in any way indicating that we are the new Israel. I was merely after the first part of that quote, which was a good way to tell it to the church is to tell it to the elders. I was not in any way indicating that the church somehow replaces Israel in the plan and program of God. So if you took it that way, I just want to revisit that and say, please forgive me if I caused confusion, and you need to forgive me because that's what we're talking about this morning. (laughs) It was a fateful day in 2003, and a young climber by the name of Aaron Ralston, 27 years old, was hiking in Blue John Canyon near the Canyonlands uh, National Park in the southwest area of Utah. Now, I've never been there, but I understand it's quite remote. And this young man was climbing and hiking back there, and he slipped and fell, and somehow his arm became pinned under a rock, a boulder that weighed some 1,000 pounds. So here you are, alone in the backwoods of nowhere, probably no cell phone, and he's trapped under a 1,000-pound boulder, one of his arms. So what do you do? What do you do? You can't scream that loud for somebody to come and get you. And so he's faced with a decision. And he made the hard choice of amputating his arm using a pocket knife. And so, as you can imagine, you can't cut through bone with a pocket knife, so a rock came into play, too, to crush the bone. You can only imagine how much courage that would take to do something like that, but a necessary step to amputate a member in order to save the entire body. And I think as we talked this morning about the fourth step of church discipline, that graphically illustrates the need that sometimes the church needs to make the same kind of hard choice, and that is to amputate or to remove a member in order to save the entire body. So this morning, we're going to ask and answer five questions related to stage four of the restoration process so that we will know how to evangelize the saved. The first question that we're going to ask this morning is, what does Jesus mean when he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector? Look at verse 17. You see, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and then 
Here's the part we're after today. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then you are to treat him, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what does that phrase mean? Well, both of these expressions, let's just put it this way, they're not complementary. They're not complementary terms. Uh, Actually, if you were to look at it literally, it is the Gentile and the tax collector. It's talking about a class of people here. And they're not compliments, they're actually derogatory terms. A Gentile in biblical times here would be best understood as those who were, like Ephesians 2, outside the covenants of Israel, strangers to the commonwealth of Israel, unsaved. They were considered pagans or unbelievers or outside of the faith. Gentiles were idol worshipers. They were unbelievers, and that's how the people understood them to be. Same with the Gentile. The word there is ethnikos. It's where we get ethnicity. And in this context, uh, I'm sorry, forward. Uh, look at Matthew 5.47. Let me, let me talk about Gentiles for just a moment. Look at Matthew 5.47. I just want to show you that they were considered to be outside of the faith. So here he says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Don't even unbelievers, don't even Gentiles, aren't they? Don't they even show love to their brothers? And you can look at 3 John 1.7 for the same idea here. Go over to the right, 3 John chapter 1, verse 7. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. At this point, the church has been formulated, and we're talking about Jews and Gentiles in one new man, the body of Christ, the church. But they're still referring to Gentiles here as those who are outside the faith. They're those who we're not going to take help from because they're unbelievers. They're pagans. And so you see there that it's not a complimentary term. The other term, tax collector, Uh, tax collectors were, as a class, uh, not only detested by the Jews, but by all the nations. Uh, they They were harsh in the way they executed their job. Their job itself was detestable. They were greedy. They were deceptive. And chief collectors, chief tax collectors, they actually got their job by bribing Rome. It went to the highest bidder. Whoever would pay the most money got the privilege of collecting taxes in a certain area, and then they would hire locals to collect local taxes from farmers and such. So uh, you can see how this would work. They not only make a living at it, but they skim off the top. They tax more than they need to tax so that they can earn a living at it and and even skim off the top to profit from their own people. Uh... They were not, not only did they steal from their own people, but they were considered to be traitors against Rome for even the way they executed the job. So, they were, by all intents and purposes, outcasts of society. They were outcasts. So these terms, Gentiles and tax collectors, mean outside the faith and outcasts of society. They're not pleasant terms. And you can see in Matthew 5 again in verse 46, 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So in the same context, tax collectors and Gentiles lumped together. Matthew 9.10, if you want to flip over there. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So here you have tax collectors lumped together with sinners. They're one and the same. They're sinners outside of society. Matthew 21, 31. Just go to the right a little bit more. Which of the two did the will of his father, they said? The first? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Not a good term. Not a good term. You don't want to be known as a tax collector or a Gentile. Here it's associated with prostitution. Not a good term. So at this stage of the discipline slash restoration process, uh, we can fairly say that those who continue with an unrepentant attitude toward God who will not seek the forgiveness of those whom they've sinned against, they, they are to remain unforgiven by the people of God. We've said that over and over. Without repentance, they do not get forgiveness. They are to be considered as functional unbelievers. They are outside of the people of God. They are outside the community of God. They are functioning or acting like unbelievers, and so that's how we're to treat them. And, and I will say this, we need to act, as I said last week, we not only need to do this, we need to act in unison as we do it. Otherwise, it won't be effective. Now, let me just clarify, you know, you know as well as I do, we can't see into the hearts of people. So there's no way to guarantee 100% that we know somebody's an unbeliever. What we're saying is functionally, they are acting like it. And neither are we called to even make such a decision. The angels will sort that out when they come. But we can certainly see the fruit in a person's life and whether or not they are repentant, whether or not they are turning from sin and seeking to be reconciled to a brother who they sinned against. If they refuse repentance and reconciliation, then they are functionally acting like an unbeliever, somebody who is outside the faith. Now, if such a determination is made that there is no genuine repentance, then back to Matthew 18, the church has every right to declare with the authority of God himself that this person is not forgiven. You see the phrase here in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven, the point of that is talking about forgiven or not in the context. It's ratification that if, if two or three believers have made this decision based on this person's actions, then they have the very authority of God himself standing behind it. And that's, that's what the point of verses 19 and 20 are all about. They're acting in accordance with God's will, and so they can stand assured that they are doing what God would be doing. 
And remember we said, God's forgiveness is conditional, right? Does God forgive an unrepentant sinner? Answer, no. And neither should the church. We know that it is, in a sense, ratified in heaven just by the verbs here. They're, they're actually perfect verbs. And you see the, how it's phrased here, shall have been bound in heaven. It's the, it's the idea that it stands as fixed. It's, it's either they're forgiven in heaven, so they're forgiven on earth, or they're not forgiven in heaven, so they're not forgiven on earth. That's the point of the passage. So, so what do we do? Well, second question, what is the purpose then of such a drastic effort? Why, why are we to do this? Well, at this point, as, as our illustration opening up showed, we need to be more concerned about the body as a whole and the preservation of the unity of the church as well as the holiness of God. At this point, we need to, in a sense, cut our losses. No pun intended. This step is actually, though, still designed to evangelize the person. And it may not seem like, like it on the front side, but it is the best way to show this person love. If you continue to tolerate their sin, then their soul becomes jeopardized. If you turn them out, then hopefully the relationships will be strong enough to bring them to repentance. But we cannot allow a person to continue in sin if it is putting their soul in jeopardy. That would not be a loving thing to do, beloved. And if it's affecting the church in a negative way, if their sin is, in a sense, splashing on the rest of the church, it needs to be dealt with. Beyond that, if they're blaspheming God's name by their lifestyle or teaching a false doctrine or something, they need to be dealt with. They will, it, it always results in disunity within the body. Unrepentant sin always leads to disunity. And that's ultimately why our brother Carlos read John 17. The point of Jesus' prayer was that we would all be one as the Trinity is one. And that we would be one with them. Sin is serious. And therefore it needs to be dealt with seriously. I want to talk about this word cleanliness for just a minute, or holiness. I use that word. I recognize that we're all sinners here. I'm not naive. I know we're all sinners, uh, but the problem is not the presence of sin. It's unrepentant sin that we're talking about here. Uh, A believer's lifestyle is to be characterized by repentance, right? When we sin, we confess, and in a parental sense, we get forgiveness, Judicially, we're already forgiven, and that remains unchanged. But when we sin and we fall out of fellowship with God, we need to repent and we need to be forgiven. In the confession of sin, one promises to turn from the sin, and then they attempt to fulfill that promise. In the forgiveness of sin... One promises not to hold that sin against that person and allow it to interfere with the relationship. If one will not attempt to turn from their sin, if they will not repent and seek forgiveness, then there really is no repentance. 
if they won't leave the sin, remember we talked about this, emotion, intellect, and will have to be involved. They have to turn from the sin and turn toward God. They have to seek God's forgiveness. And if they will not, then they not only don't have God's forgiveness, then the church can't forgive them. I know these are difficult concepts to grasp, but it's right here in the text. And so we need to, by faith, apprehend them. Look at 1 John. Let me just flip you over there real quick. First John chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now why do you think that's there? Why do you think that's there? Is forgiveness conditional or not? Notice the word if. And, th- and we're talking about parental forgiveness. I'm not talking about losing your salvation here. I'm talking about not judicial forgiveness, but parental. When you sin against your parents and you fall out of fellowship with them, what do you have to do? You have to ask for forgiveness and restore the fellowship, right? And that's how it is with God. Now, evangelistically, even if a person is removed from the fellowship, it is considered evangelism because primarily it should be motivated by love for the individual. It's not to punish them. Punishment and discipline, we talked about that the first week. This is an act of love. We love them, and in this respect, this step needs to be done in a way that encourages repentance and restoration. The goal is not to get rid of them. The goal is to restore them. And so even this step is designed for that purpose. An example of what we might say to somebody. I I found this in a book by J. Carl Laney on the topic. We find your present conduct unacceptable to God in this congregation, and our love for you therefore demands that we take action which Though painful, we hope by God's grace will result in your repentance and restoration to us. The goal is not to get rid of them. And the only way this is going to work, beloved, is if we have a relationship. If there's no relationship, then what happens? Well, there's plenty of churches around, right? We'll just go to the church up the street. There has to be relationships for this to work. Third question, are there examples of this step of restoration in Scripture? And the answer is yes. In a word, yes. There are examples beyond Matthew 18, which we've looked at extensively. Uh, Turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We spoke to this last week. There was a young man in the congregation who had his father's wife. He was committing incest. And so Paul brings this situation to bear. And I'm not going to take the time to read the whole passage to you. But I just want you to notice a few of these verses and look at the language. Verse 2. 
You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that this, the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. See that phrase, remove him from your midst. Look at verse 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. The hard step of turning him out of the church, turning him over to God's providence and over to Satan's discipline now. Verse 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may become a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. So clean out the old, clean out the leaven, the old leaven. And then again in verse 13. But those who are outside God judges, that is unbelievers. God will deal with unbelievers. But the man who is a so-called brother, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. He's an immoral man. Remove him. Get him out of your midst. Now, this is an aside topic, but if you look over at 2 Corinthians, why don't, why don't you turn there just real quick? I, I won't take time to explain the whole passage. I don't have the time. But 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, many people think that this is the man that was committing incest over in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, and that Paul here in 2 Corinthians has restored the man. What I want you to see in particular is notice in verse 6. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Notice that the whole church is in on the restoration of this individual. So, we see an example and we even see that it worked, if this is indeed the case. Uh, Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, why don't you turn there. And the Apostle Paul tells Titus, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. So if you take first and second warnings to be steps one and two, then what we're talking about here is step three and and the rejection of this individual. Uh, Factious men, again, the point is they're causing division in the church. They're factious. And this idea of rejecting them The point here is to have nothing to do with them. That's what the word means. Disassociate yourself from them. They're divisive. And divisiveness is not to be tolerated in the church. Turn back to the left. 1 Timothy 1.20. Paul's telling Timothy here, Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So Paul handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan and notice so that they would be taught, so they would be taught not to blaspheme. 1 John 2.19, this is the last one I'll take you to. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that, that they all are not of us. And, and I just want you to notice here that these apostates left the church 
And they were declared by the church to not be a part of it. They were declared to be unbelievers. So, what can we glean from these passages in relation to the restoration process? Well, there's really three actions for us to take note of here. There's a removal or a a cleaning or a cleansing, uh, getting a person out of the church's midst. Second, there's a, a handing them over to Satan. And third, there's treating them like heathens or unbelievers. So, there's an imperative for getting the person out of the church for the benefit of the church and the honor of God's name. There's a, a concern for the person that they're to be handed over to Satan to be taught so that their spirit, in the end, might be saved. And third, the church is to treat the person like an unbeliever. They're no longer to be considered part of the believing community. Functional unbelief. I think it's pretty plain. I think it's pretty plain. So can they come and still hear the preaching? Well, I don't know. It depends. It depends on the circumstances, and that leads to the fourth question. Are there times when one's removal from the church is permanent? Are there times when it's permanent? And admittedly, this is where it starts to get messy. It depends on the circumstances. We would dearly love it if somebody under the right circumstances would repent of their sin and that we could extend them forgiveness and they could be restored to the fellowship, but that's not always how it works. Perhaps uh, life situations change that make it impossible to restore them to the fellowship. Maybe they represent a, a danger to the congregation because of the nature of their sin. And maybe their repentance needs to be observed for a little while. Maybe they've had such a long pattern of lying and deceit that we just can't really trust them. See, it just, there, there needs to be wisdom applied to this situation. We may forgive somebody, but it's possible they might not return. And, and frankly, this is the danger of going this far in the restoration process. Because once you get to this point, there's no guarantees that they're ever going to be returned to the fellowship. It may end up being permanent. So let me put this up here for you and let me just show you the implications. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And the first contingency is implied. If he repents, then the result is implied. Then you've won your brother, and he may or may not return to the fellowship, depending on the circumstances. Contingency number two, if he, if he does not repent, then you have not won your brother, and he remains unforgiven outside the fellowship of the church, and you may or may not ever see them again. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what would keep somebody from coming back? We'd love to have them back. What would keep somebody from coming back to the fellowship? Well, let me just give you some possible contingencies, maybe some things you haven't thought about. 
But here are some obstacles that, that may present that would, that would cause somebody not to be able to be restored. And the first is, maybe they were teaching false doctrine. And, and you know, they may ask for forgiveness, but it may be that they've now committed themselves to this doctrine, and we can't have them here teaching false doctrine. That would be divisive. That would be divisive. Secondly, maybe they repent of a sin against another, but they're just factious and divisive people. And they've been repeated and warned and warned and repeated, and they may ask for forgiveness for a specific offense, but we're finding that they're just way too disruptive in the body and that they're causing disruption in the fellowship. Third, what if they were a sexual predator? Or if there's ongoing immorality in their lives, and they, yes, we forgive them, but can we trust them around the people of God? Remember I told you there's a difference between criminal activity and sin, right? If there's criminal activity, it may prohibit them from returning here. What if there's a divorce? What if there's a divorce and the one in sin has since remarried and left the community? We're not going to restore that individual here. Very unlikely. What if the person in sin moves away from the community? They just say, I'm moving on. And I'm just not wanting to be restored to the fellowship. What if they... What if they, in the process of leaving this church, commit to membership in another church? They're not going to come back here and place membership. They don't want to be restored. What if there's ongoing drug addiction? We really have to think of the safety of God's people. Other criminal activity. So as as leaders, I think as elders, we have to we have a moral obligation to protect the people of God here, the, the safety of the whole. And at times it, it may prohibit. We may forgive them, but it just may not be possible for them to be here. Uh, here's a, a difficult question. Uh, can I still be friends with the person who's been put out? Well, that's a hard one to answer. We live in a very individualistic society, and are we as a church acting in unison to disassociate ourselves from this person, or are there going to be a lot of one-off transactions going on? Well, yeah, the church put them out, but I'm still friends with them. Well, how do you define friendship? That would be my question for you. And by the way, if if one does, let's just say everything goes well and the person does repent, and they want to be restored, what they need from us is love and acceptance and the reassurance of the church. What they do not need are flippant and insensitive sort of responses. They need healing. They need restoration. They need fellowship. And they need to be embraced, not held at a distance. So forgiven means what? Forgiven. Forgiven means you're not going to hold it against him. Remember we talked about what is forgiveness? Ultimately, it's a promise. 
We're not going to hold it against you. We're not going to allow it to be a barrier in our relationship. We're going to forgive you. This is no longer going to stand between us. Now, a lot of you had questions. So what, is, what does this look like with unbelievers? What, what does this look like with an unbeliever? How does this play out? And, and this, is, this is difficult because most of the New Testament is addressed to believing communities. So church discipline doesn't really work with unbelievers. It, it sort of presupposes you're dealing with a believer. Step four is if you come to the conclusion that maybe they're acting like an unbeliever, then that's what that is there for. But Matthew 18 in particular is for believers to be restored to one another. Now what about the issue of forgiveness itself? And I know a lot of you are struggling with that. What, what do you say to an unbeliever? And as I said, this is really not a series on forgiveness. It's a series on the restoration process even though forgiveness is a big part of it. But this instruction is for two believers to be reconciled through this process. It's really not applicable to unbelievers. But there is a place we can go for a little help on this, and that would be Romans 12.18. So why don't you turn in your Bibles to Romans 12. So what do we do with unbelievers and the topic of forgiveness? Well, Romans 12, 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And all men here in the Greek means all men. In the context of this passage, unbelievers are included. But what we know to be true about unbelievers is that they do not know the true God, right? They are self-centered rather than oriented toward God. They do not have the indwelling spirit, so they are incapable of loving God or others in a way that is pleasing to God. They cannot understand the word of God because it's spiritually discerned and appraised. And even if they could understand it, they wouldn't want to obey it. Nor could they. Those who are in the flesh, Romans 8, 8, cannot please God. Yet, the command for us as believers is to be at peace with them as much as possible. So far as it depends on you, if it's possible, be at peace with them. So what does that mean? Well, that means you do your best. Do your best to be at peace with the person, but understand that forgiveness is really not possible if they're unbelievers. Because God himself has not forgiven them. And this is a hard concept for us to grasp, and I know some of you are struggling with it, but let me just ask you this question. Who are you to forgive somebody whom God himself has not even forgiven? I mean, just let that sink in for just a moment. If forgiveness is a promise, you can't make them that promise because God himself hasn't made that promise. Well, what does it look like then? 
Well, the answer is that if someone sins against you who's an unbeliever, you can confront them in their sin, for sure. You can confront them. Just recognize that all you may get from them is an apology. An apology is weak sauce. It's a watered-down version of forgiveness for unbelievers. We use the word apologetics, and what that means is a defense of the faith, right? So what's an apology? It's a defense. All it is is a defense of their actions and why they did what they did. But it's not the same as asking for forgiveness. It's a cheap substitute. But they really don't have the power indwelling them to repent. Repentance is a gift. It's a gift of the Spirit. The Spirit changes our affections and grants repentance. This is not a new concept. A simple read through the New Testament will tell you that. Forgiveness, since they cannot repent, means that forgiveness is really not open to them. So what do you say? What, what do you say? Well, you, if they confess to you, you, you thank them for acknowledging their sin against you. You, you. you thank you for acknowledging their fault. In your heart, you need to be willing to forgive them. You need to not become embittered and angry toward them. And you need to be willing to forgive them and mean it. Let it go. Leave it with God. You can pray for them. And if the timing is right, you can explain to them how they might really experience the forgiveness of God, not only for that sin, but for all of their sins. It's an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Use it as an opportunity for the gospel. Now again, you guys are believers, but... I'm not naive enough to think you're never going to sin against an unbeliever. So what do you do if the tables are turned? What if you've sinned against them? Well, you need to ask for forgiveness from them. And here's the ironic thing. They don't really know what to do with this. They have no idea. Since they don't know the forgiveness of God, they have no ability to imitate it. But that doesn't release you from your obligation to ask as a believer, right? We're looking at Romans here. As far, if possible, so far as it depends on you, do what you can do to be at peace with them. Now, even though they don't know how, they're still responsible to forgive you. That's a hard concept for us to grasp, too. Ability and responsibility are two different things. They have the responsibility to forgive you, but they may not have the ability to do it. But they're still responsible to God for doing the right thing, too. Ultimately, God will have to judge that matter. God will have to judge. But, so far as it is possible, so as it depends on you, be at peace. Be at peace with all men. So, 
We've seen over the last five weeks five motivations for practicing church discipline. I hope this has been helpful. We have seen the commitment of a father, and we have said that God's discipline of us as believers is a legitimate mark of sonship, and that's a motivation for us because we discipline because God disciplines. We've seen the constraint of a believer in that it's our responsibility not only to restrain ourselves from sin, but also not to cause others to stumble. We need to restrain ourselves in these matters. We've seen the care of a brother, that if somebody sins against us, what was our rule? The one with the sore toes goes because he's the one who knows. If you've been sinned against, you need to go confront that person in their sin. It's the loving thing to do rather than allow them to continue to be an offense. We need to care for them enough to confront them in love. We've seen the concern of a community. We should be concerned about the one who has gone astray, and we should work together as a team to bring that person to repentance. And today we've seen that as a community, we need to be willing to do the hard thing for the sake of the whole body and for the sake of God's holy name, right? We must be willing to sever a relationship, not only for the sake of the individual's soul, but for the sake of the body as a whole, that it might be saved. We need to pray and trust that God will work through his providence to reattach them if it's his will. So, church discipline, the restoration of a fallen saint, is a necessary and vital practice for the health of the body of Christ. And we must be committed to it, beloved, if we are going to evangelize the saved. If we care about each other enough, we're going to hold the rope. And we're not going to let somebody stray so far into the darkness of sin that we're not going to rescue them. We need, to, we need to love them enough to do what it takes to rescue them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in this discussion about restoration, we see the gospel itself. Our Father, it's very clear that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. You sent Christ to be our substitute and and the stand-in for the sin of our soul. Father, may we have the same attitude toward other brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, if they be in sin, may we extend ourselves to them as you did to us. And we know that this is not something we simply do in the flesh. Our Father, it takes your spirit indwelling us to be able to do this the way it needs to be done to imitate Christ in these matters, to bring the gospel to bear on the subject of sin. Father, sin is a serious thing, and it it lurks at the door, waiting to create division at every opportunity. Father, by your grace, may we fight against it. May we be a unified body of Christ. May we help one another in areas of sin. May we confront one another in loving ways when necessary. Father, may we care enough about each other to really practice what your word tells us to do. 
We ask for your Spirit's enablement in these things. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, thank you for the last five weeks and for your attention. If you have questions that you want to run by me, I'll be down here after the service. God bless you, beloved.